One of the great things that the white world does not know, but I think I do know, is that black people are just like everybody else. Everybody knows, no matter what they do not know, that they wouldn't like to be a black man in this country. What are you without racism? I ain't good. I'm still strong. You're still smart. You still like yourself. I want to live like you. This country is mine, too. I paid as much for it as you. If you can only be tall because somebody's on their knees, then you have a serious problem. And my feeling is white people have a very, very serious problem. And they should start thinking about what they can do about it. Take me out of it. Hello, everyone and anyone listening. Uh, it's been a little while, but, you know, I took what life gave me and here we are today speaking um, or listening. And as I intro this episode, uh, which I'm very excited about, I just feel like I needed someone that kicked it off that to me embodies everything that it means to go against the system speak up when you may be the most fearful and dick gregory to me is is one of the most remarkable humans that i've you know encountered known about and his life was a true testament to not leaving any stone unturned you know failure to launch dying of fear the title of this episode some of these heroes of mine that mean so much to me that had a plan and were able to do exactly what they wanted to do. And a lot of it, especially the farther back you go, the more courage it took to be yourself, to be black, to be fearless in a white world. I talked a while back about whenever I was about to do something and became fearful that that became the moment where I would hit the go button to fight against that, to not stop and think about it too much. Because when you do that, there's a certain sense of inertia that kicks in where you don't end up doing anything. People like Dick Gregory and Marcus Garvey, Marvin Gaye were able to, for the most part, resist that and leave a legacy of doing, trying, being you know, and that's the thing that matters the most. For someone like Marvin Gaye, which I talk about during the episode, whose What's Going On album remained on the table the whole time, for that album to come out, there was fear on both sides. There was fear from him because he felt it in him to do something so radically different from what he'd known, what made him popular. And on the other side, there was fear in terms of what if this isn't received well? What if it doesn't sell? Because at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's a business, right? But the fact that Marvin felt something in him that told him that it's either this or nothing at all. And he went with that. And in the end, it, it wasn't even necessarily about him being right, but just about him following his heart and what he felt was right even if in the end it wouldn't have been you know commercially or critically received well so i think that's the thing that i let guide me most now 
is when I have it in me to do something a certain way, to not overthink it, to spend time pondering how I'm going to execute it, but at the same time, not think about it in a way where it could stifle creativity and actually stifle execution. These things that I share are of utmost importance to me. This Dick Gregory comedy special, which I feel like does a disservice to call it just that because it's, it's much, much more than that, is one of those things that changed my life. And it's something that I go to again and again because even though it was recorded decades ago, it still rings true today and it feels so relevant today still, which is sad in a way, but it just speaks to his courage and his foresight and his fearlessness. And I'm so grateful to him. So when I think about me going ahead and using a big clip of it because it speaks to what I feel like I'm trying to do and speaking about, it's important for me to just trust that and those who get it, get it. And those who don't, don't. And, be, and being okay with that. I truly hope you're able to glean something from Dick Gregory's genius work and my conversation trailing it. Thank you for being here and welcome to season two. We're tired of these insults. That's what we're talking about. I'm tired of them. You know how insulting it is when white folks ask black folks in the country to be nonviolent? Who's asking us to be nonviolent? The only country in the history of the world that's dropped a nuclear bomb on another human being is now asking us to behave. Every morning you go out and drop napalm on women and kids and then you want us to behave? Nobody know how insulting it is any more than me because I am so dedicated to nonviolence. Thou shall not kill to me means everything with life in it, so consequently I had to become a vegetarian. That's my hang up though, I don't go around preaching it yet. I'll never knock a steak out of your plate and I'll never let you put a pork chop in mine. But as dedicated as I am to nonviolent, it alienates me to hear white folks in America tell black folks to be nonviolent. You own the mightiest army, the mightiest navy, the mightiest air force, own all the police, state police, federal police, local police, sheriff's police, CIA, FBI. You own all them guns and then come to us, we don't own nothing and say, be nonviolent, boy, we say to you, you go to hell. <laughs> if you're sincere about nonviolence, we say, prove it to us. Prove it, don't do nothing for us, because we prove to you, we burn a town down. But since you lack nonviolence, we say to you to get up on that Indian reservation and cut your red brother loose because you can't be no more nonviolent than this Indian's been in America for the last 75 years. What happened to your appetite for nonviolence? Why is that Indian still on that reservation since you're supposed to freak out so much over nonviolence? As long as that Indian's on that reservation, you should never be caught uttering the word nonviolence because you prove with him still up there, you have a passionate disrespect for nonviolence. And the only time you lack nonviolence is when somebody decides to get violent. 
If that Indian wants a better way of life in the morning, it's sad, I have to sit here and admit to you. He got to understand he's dealing with such a racist, insane nation that until you make this country peep up through the muzzle of a gun, she gonna keep you a nigga. Oh, that Indian wants a better way of life in the morning. All he got to do is get out on the viaduct in Arizona and catch you white folk driving down the expressway, going to work in the morning, start shooting at you, bow and yelling, red power. Why'd he go home? And when that Indian tell you to go home, he talking about the big trip, baby. <laughs> oh, and just as sure as that Indian got violent in the morning, oh, the whole country be upset. I can just hear him not him stinking reds. And then come Sunday, you go home and turn on television and look at Meet the Press, and they'll be interviewing some of Uncle Tom Tom Indian. <laughs> That'll be telling all the fools everything they want to hear. I can just hear him now. Yes, me like a heap of reservation. The problem comes from them young bucks, them Stokely running horses and rap light clouds. <laughs> As long as that Indian had enough sense to keep coming off that reservation and socking it to you and burning some of these colleges down that's on his property and getting him some of them blonde scalps and raping some of your white ladies, oh, it upsets you, but you listen to him. <laughs> that's the only thing you understand. Oh, that Indian raised a lot of hell. Next summer you turn on television, you see as many Indians on television as you saw black folks last year. I can just see it now. Tune in every Tuesday night. Hour-long special, seven-part series, Meet Your Indian Brother, brought to you by Xerox, no commercials. <laughs> oh, that Indian raised enough hell this year, next year you have an Indian here talking to you. <laughs> you don't care about that Indian today because he's done exactly what you say you like people to do. He's behaved himself. And only in this country, if he starts acting violent, that's sad and that's shame. Would you understand? Because if he starts raising hell, all you understand then, all at once you learn that the highest form of tuberculosis among any minority group on the face of this earth happens upon your Indian reservations. The highest form of suicide rate among young folks happens upon your Indian reservation. While you march your whole army past the reservation to go to Vietnam to Guarantee some foreigner a better way of life than you want to guarantee your own Indian brother who you stole this country from. You've got to be sick and insane. And then who takes care of Indian business? The Bureau of Indian Affairs. Is that a joke? It's like paying the Ku Klux Klan to implement the civil rights bill. <laughs> and you know how much we pay the Bureau of Indian Affairs? The money it costs to run the Bureau of Indian Affairs, if we wiped out the Bureau of Indian Affairs, every Indian in America, just from the money it costs to run the Bureau, could get $4,300 a year apiece. So I say to you youngsters, I hope that you will create a situation in America where America will become as ashamed of injustices at home as she is afraid of communism abroad. You'd be surprised how many changes we would make. And so I say to you and leaving you tonight that black folks have got an attitude. We're tired of all these insults. Now people come up to us and say, how come y'all don't want to be called color? Or how come we can't call y'all Negro no more? That's right. That's what we're trying to say. It's safer just to say black. We don't mean to put you white folks in no imposition, but we notice you don't play no games with yourself. 
why playing with us? A Jew leaves Israel tonight to come to my country. He's a Jew in Israel. He stays a Jew when he gets here. An Italian leaves Italy to come to my country. He's an Italian over there in Italy. He stays Italian when he gets here. The Irishman left Ireland to come to America. He was an Irishman over there. He stayed an Irishman when he got here. We notice you ain't played no games with yourself. Don't play them with us. We left Africa, Africans, and when we got here, we got to be colored folks and Nigras and Nugras. And don't play no more games with us. You want to change some names? Call yourself clear people. <laughs> change your thing, being that we both made that same trip across the Atlantic. It didn't change you. It better not change me. That's what we're talking about. We're tired of these insults. Boy, that's what we're talking about. Four years ago, three white bars burned up their draft card. And within two weeks' time, the Senate and Congress had passed an anti-draft card burning bill. Remember that? We haven't been able to get them to give us an anti-lynching bill in a hundred years. My country just told me she thinks more of a piece of cardboard than she thinks of my black mammy. I'll bring her to her knees for that. We're tired of these insults. But keep it in your own head. Don't insult me with it no more. You know, the interesting thing about the same white man that believe I'm inferior to him because I'm black, he would be the first one to tell you tonight that if I went to bed with a Japanese woman and gave her a baby, the baby gonna be colored. If I went to bed with a Jewish woman, Irish woman, I can go to bed with any woman on the face of this earth and give her a baby, and he'll tell you the baby gonna be me. My sister can go to bed with any man on the face of this earth and get a baby, and the baby will be her. Is that inferior stock to you? We're tired of all these insults. And all we're doing is reacting to them. Now white folks tell us, why don't y'all quit all that demonstrating and go down the ghetto and pull your brother up by his bootstraps? Why don't you give him some boots with some zippers on them? <laughs> When we admit down in the ghetto in America, black women in America have 20% illegitimate babies. We ain't going to deny that. We've had fun in the ghetto, baby. <laughs> White women in America have 2% illegit. But we're tired of those insults. We'd really like to sit the record straight and would like for you white folks to, just because your white sister got... 2% illegitimate babies and my black sister got 20% illegitimate babies. You wants to run around believing Marley, you're a better man than I am because your sister got 2% illegit and my sister got 20%. But let's sit the record straight. If we ever get our hands on you white folks' abortion credit cards, we will show you how to knock a rate down too, baby. <laughs> I'm 37 years old now. It means I would have gone 27 years without a daddy. Now that's no insult, because when daddies go to war, they go to kill or be killed. The insult is the same German that could have killed my daddy during World War II in 1942 and made me go 27 years without a daddy, that same German tonight can come to my daddy's country and live in a neighborhood my daddy's boy can't live in. Do you really understand what we talking about? We stand before we ever sit by and let you treat your enemy better than you treat your citizens. We'll burn this damn country down to the ground. That's what we talking about. We learned that from you. We watched you burn Vietnam down to the ground to free a foreigner. We know what you do to free your mama. 
And we tired of these insults. Because every time she get pregnant, I remember that just a little bit over a hundred years ago, back down in the slave tent, when my black slave sister rushed up to her black slave man and said, honey, I think I'm pregnant. And them two black slaves fell down on their knees and prayed to their almighty God that the unborn baby would be born deformed. You think about that prayer one day. God, we dealing with such a racist, inhumane beast that if you could give us this baby, Lord, born with a limb missing of God, if you could give him to us with his body twisted and put a hump in his back, God, if you really wanted to be good to us, God, give us this baby born maladjusted because, God, if you give us a baby like that, the white folks will never be able to sell him. And, Lord, we get to keep that baby all our life. You think about that prayer one day. And one day, my black slave sister rushed up to her black slave man, crying, tears of joy, honey, the Lord's answered our prayers. His, his head looks funny. I think he's going to be maladjusted. And them two black slaves fell back down on their knees, praying tears of joy, thanking big God for a maladjusted baby. Baby that can never be sold. <laughs> a baby that they'll get to keep for the rest of their life. Progress. Well, me and my old lady got seven more black babies at home, and we ain't never had to pray for nothing, less long with maladjusted baby. That's all the progress we're going to give this sister. And so, as I leave you tonight, I say we're tired of these white insults. And all we're doing is reacting to them. <laughs> and for the next four years, we're going to see if we can wipe out the problems of hunger confronting Americans today. And I say to you, young white kids tonight, you kids that's dedicated for human rights, you kids that want to help the Indians and help the Puerto Ricans and help the Mexicans, one mistake I hope you will not make there's a poor, hungry, hillbilly white boy in this country that nobody gives a damn about. I hope you will make him your concern too. They busy passing out food stamps in South Carolina to black folks. There's some white folks in Appalachia that need some food stamps too. I hope you get concerned about all people. And I hope you be as interested in going into that white ghetto tutoring that little hillbilly's kid too, because he got a right to get some help. I hope you will see to it that the colleges and universities in America will open up their doors and take in some of them hillbillies' kids too. I hope you don't start helping everybody and pass your poor white brother by and make him pay the cost for this vicious, insane society. And so you youngsters have a big job. I know many of you have to go to work. Some of you got babysitters to relieve. So right now, we're going to turn you loose, those of you that have to go. And I say to you, thank you so much for showing up tonight. May nature have fun with you, and may God bless you. Thank you. This season has been a while coming, but, you know, um, what is where time, time will respect it. It's one of my favorite quotes. And um, yeah, so I have my cousin, uh, Cindy here, helping me with, uh, <laughs> with this little project. And uh, she's off camera, she's a bit shy, but you know, she's gonna do her best to... Uh... <laughs> I am a little shy, but we can do questions. <laughs> okay. 
All right. What's, what's your first question that's not on, on there for me? I want to know how your coffee was this morning. I don't drink coffee. Well, caffeine is a great drug. Actually, no, no, I, I, I do drink coffee. I, I, like, I like decaf. I like okay. decaf once in a while. Me too. My therapist told me to stick to decaf, so that's what we're yeah. doing. Yeah, I don't, I, no, I, I, don't, I can't handle caffeine. I don't, yeah, I don't me neither. Caffeine. You know, I'm shy, but I'm very, I'm up there on the energy scale without it without the caffeine so that's why you got your bike outside exactly <laughs> I'm biking home after this <laughs> now my first real question is tell us why the podcast is called space and time uh the podcast is called is called space and time because i feel like in all the relationships whether it be familial platonic um romantic i feel like that's the number one lesson that i've learned in terms of what works best if the relationship is going to go anywhere mm -hmm. especially when you're having a contentious moment the number one thing that you can do is just give it some space and time and, and come back just that ability to even step away from two minutes five minutes works wonders so um and actually i talked about it during season one but it was like a different name and um that was taken afterwards but i, I do believe that that wasn't supposed to be the the name in the end so yeah so with the first season was it scary being so intimate and getting so personal with it you know the, the first season is very i i took what life gave me you know what i mean the whole like you know life gives you lemons kind of a thing because i had initially thought that i was going to do a few episodes and then i was going to do more traditional where you know, I'm going to be sitting down with people and, and interviewing them and, and whatnot, but things just kept happening, mm -hmm. you know, and I feel like it turned out exactly how it was supposed to. Like, I have so many women around me and I always tell people, like, if they give you a compliment, like you earned it. And I have a friend that basically one day she listened to like the whole thing and she was she wanted to tell me like how amazing she thought it was. And she was like, I feel like I'm getting a glimpse into something before it morphs into something else. And she talked about how it came off like a journal and, you know, and, and she had nothing but like high praises and that meant so much coming from her. And um, yeah, and the way that it ended, I, I feel like it was, um, what well, was a sad note, but it was um, it felt right to end it there for the first season and uh, a lot's happened and um, I've been planning this for a while and um, yeah it feels it feels right all right so that shows that people are learning from you they're listening from you I mean they're listening to you so what have you learned by doing your podcast um, what I've learned is that you never know who's listening you know like I, I have I have one review on uh, like iTunes and uh, I had someone tell me that they hope I never find out who actually wrote the review and I, to this day I, I don't know who wrote it yeah. and it's the most like incredible so the fact that that's everyone's first point of contact if they go on and they see that review before they listen to anything like that means the world to me yeah. and, and it came right after um, right after the podcast that I did when my grandmother passed away. So that review means a lot. Like, you know, I, I go back and I, I read it often just because, awesome. again, I, I still don't know who it is, but you know, whoever you are, thank you. How is fear useful in your life? 
How is fear useful in my life? I think it just shows me which avenues not to go down. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I see so many people that live in fear every day. And one of the examples that I've always used is the couple, the guy that goes to the same restaurant for 40 years, gets the same meal, goes home and dies. Yeah. It's like, that's one of the saddest things to me. And there's so many people like that. It's like, I like what I like. Where I'm like, well, why don't you try something different? This might be your new favorite thing. But people are so scared and if they don't like something, what, what if you do? There's always, that's the trade-off, you know? But maybe that's just how I think. But, you know, I, I think that's how fear is useful in, in my life. It's just, um, you know, this is a prime example. I, I told you something. We had a conversation recently and you text me out of nowhere. You're like, man, this is like lived in my head yeah. since you said it and you got it tatted on you. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think and, about it every day. Yeah. It's, it's like that's one of those things that I, I think about almost daily. It's like don't die wondering, you know. So, and it, you know, it's pretty fitting that my father's recording this. For, for those of you who don't know, uh, um, you know, my father is a filmmaker uh, amongst many other things. And, um, and to think about how my relationship with him has kind of transformed through the years. And I, I remember one of my first... Um, ideas of fear was with him you know what I mean because a lot of times when we're born in like ethnic families we're we're so fearful at times even if if they don't instill that in us but just kind of like I don't know it's kind of like passed down and I remember one time he was uh, he was like sleeping on the couch and we wanted to go outside and we're like talking to each other like nah, nah you ask him you ask him but like just the fear to ask to go outside you know what I mean? And, and now to be able to, you know, speak to him and like, you know, yesterday was Father's Day and I had an idea to do something. And a lot of times when I get an idea, like I, I have to execute it and it'll turn from something that's supposed to be like very quick, but then it'll take a lot of time. And, and for me to like execute it exactly how I wanted it to. And there's still a little bit of that trepidation there where like, because if you don't grow up with that interaction where you're having that conversation openly, um, at times when you're doing something so out of the norm for you from your previous life, it, it does still feel a little bit weird, but I just use that, don't die wondering. Because if somebody passed and I wasn't able to do something that I wanted to do, that would mean more to me than anything any reaction that they could have, like an adverse reaction to whatever I do. So I think I answered the question, right? You did. That's how fear is useful in my life. So then what are some of your biggest fears today? Um, I mean, other than the normal ones, obviously like losing my parents. Um, besides that, I think, I think not being able to execute not being able to execute the things that I have. Like I have a lot of ideas. Like at, at times it, it just feels overwhelming, the things that like I, I wanna do. Um, so not being able to do them. I'll give you a prime example, even today, right? Like I've been putting, doing this off for, for a while because I'm such an energy person. And after that conversation and I hit you and I was like, I, I need you, like I, I need that energy because like you're one of the people that I feel like really gets me and I feel like I get you. 
uh, there was a friend that I, I wanted to be a part of this, but but again, like you can't you can't wait for people because you'll spend your whole life prolonged, like you know what I mean, putting things off. And you almost like you had things that you were doing and you forgot, and you were like, "Can we reschedule for next Monday?" And I'm like, and I'm, I'm like, like what no about? I'm like, what about? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what about this time? Because yeah. it's like no, but it just it was just some minor like you know adjustments, but um. But no, I wanted you to be a part of it, and uh, it was it was important for me to do that, and um, yeah. So so for me, it's 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 not being able to running out of time without without doing all the things that I want to do. Like that's the that's the scariest thing for me. All right, and is there anything that you haven't done out of fear that you regret today? Anything that I haven't done out of fear that I regret today, um, you know. Even the things that I haven't executed in a timely manner, in hindsight, like hindsight is twenty twenty, like they say, right? Afterwards, I'm always like, man, like if I would have done this at this time, I would have hated this. Yeah. You know, so, but the, the only thing is, I would say a regret is like, I've made clothing since like 2014, 2015, and I've yet to put any clothing out. Yeah, I didn't even know that about you. Yeah, yeah. So, but I see it. I see it. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've I've made some pieces for a while, and um, but again, like I'm, you know, like I, I I live with things. One one of the things that one of the most important things photography has taught me is coming back to things with a new eye, because you'll take a photo. Because initially, when you start, you think like every photo you take is is great. It's not. Yeah. You know, so being able to like take a photo. And then I'll come back to it a month, a year. There are photos I've taken a year, two years out that I hated, and then I end up loving or vice versa. So that's, that's been like really important. Okay, all right. So we were just talking about your clothing line. So what else have you failed to launch? Um, well, and, and here's the thing, it's not just a clothing line. So like, I guess this is a good explanation, right? So the, the main thing, like if, if somebody looked me like, oh, it, it's Uzadu, mm -hmm. right? And I remember the day I came up with it, I was at the table, I don't, I don't know if my sister was there, um, but I was like trying to find a name. And for me, like the way things look, like names, like the design of it, yeah. like all of it matters, right? So I was like painstakingly like trying to find something that matched how I feel about myself and the world and whatnot. And um, there's this, there's this, the song, uh, we have everything we need, you know, and uh, there's this Axel Vavort uh, quote where he's talking about the fact that, you know, there's, there's no new forest, there's no new anything, you know, and we have to make do with the things that we have already. And, you know, this lady had talked about how we operate right now in the world. We use finite resources in an infinite way, you know, and we just can't sustain ourselves that way we can't sustain the world that way you know and the fact that whole thing where like you know the world is not we're not going to destroy earth like we're going to destroy ourselves the earth is going to continue to go on so the fact that you know uzado and creole means you know something that's used and worn and everything like that and my favorite things are used and worn it's very seldom that i really buy get new things um so uzado is kind of like the umbrella for everything else like space and time, the podcast is under that. So I think that's the main reason why I wasn't too concerned when 
I didn't put the clothing out because it's not just a clothing. It's it's a you know it's a, it's a creative hub. It's a it's this being able to get people together because I feel like so much of the things that I've done in recent times have been like social experiments mm -hmm. because the social experiment 2022 is you know your family your your friends all of these people how often can you talk to them on the phone i'm not talking about like you know texting and whatnot like when was the last time you heard their voice when was the last time you were close to them where you felt their energy you know what i mean there's there's something to that so these are things that are really important to me and you know sometimes they may take a little bit longer to um to manifest but you know i i'm the main thing is, is just working every day on something, even if it's just thought, you know? Um, the next question I have for you, I know personally as a creative, a lot of times the things that I think people will say ahead of time, I'm already looking ahead, <laughs> will keep me from doing something yeah, yeah. or like they'll say something and then I dwell on it and yeah. I sit in it. So for you, has anything others have had to say impacted the chances you've taken? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I, I think it's more so pushing me, galvanizing me to do the things that I want to do. I, I was having dinner with this girl in Boston one time and she said um, she wanted to start a YouTube channel. And so I was like, well, what's the problem? Why don't you just do it? And her reasoning was, well, what if no one watches? And I'm like, well, that's always the risk that you take everybody's so scared you know what I mean like and that's why this episode is called um, uh, failure to launch uh, dying of fear you know what I mean like think about all the fears that are in the cemetery all the books all the podcasts all the movies all the you know what I mean talks all the things that people never said like you know what I mean like once you're dead what, what do you have to do with them so that conversation with that girl like always like rings in my head because it's like man it's like the fear of throwing a party which no one shows up at. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like when I used to have events, like I've had events that I've had way more people than I wanted, I thought was coming. And then I've had events where it's just like, man, do I know anyone? <laughs> but it's like, but, but that's not the important part. Like I said before, like the important part is doing it, you know, because not doing it and then having to lay down and think about not doing something because of fear like that's more painful than anything else absolutely so of all of the people around you and watching their fears as you grew up um how have their fears affected you how have the fears of the people around me growing up affected me like seeing how they have dealt with their fears yeah outside looking in how has that affected you Oh man, I, I would say one of the biggest ways in which it's affected me is relationships. Just all around and not just necessarily just people I grew up around, but I'm of the belief that people just settle way too much. You know what I mean? It's like people, I, I think people forget how much free will they have, you know, no pun. Um, and it's like, man, like as far as you know, like, no, not, you know that in this lifetime you have this one body and you have so much say so in a lot of your happiness and I feel like people don't really wield that power and it's like you can leave if you don't like what someone's saying to you you can go 
and people get to a certain point where they just become they just stagnate and it's like that's so sad to say oh you know what we're 50 you know just ride it out what if you live another 50 years you gonna tolerate this person for another 50 years like that's that that's that's really sad to me so i feel like that and uh and finances you know what i mean like i'm i'm in the finance world and and seeing how people because you know when you come from somewhere where you don't really have much so when you get a little bit of something it's like you hold on to it so dearly so people will like you know have a little bit of money and they're so afraid to do something else with it invest it in another way where they could you know quadruple or 10x that but the fact that they're so afraid of losing what they've accumulated to that point that they'll never see the true potential, you know? So just seeing that, like that, that kind of makes me be like, I'm not going to be that, you know? So going back to the relationship thing, do you fear sharing a life with someone else? Um, do I, <laughs> do I fear live, sharing a life with somebody else? Sharing a life. Um, I, I don't fear, I used to, I used to fear sharing a life with somebody else, but not anymore. Um, I think there's, there's this like, um, you know, they take the movie, um, I think it's, it's from her, like I love that movie, right? And they're talking about the fear of like growing, growing together, but growing apart. You know what I'm saying? Like um, the fact that, you know, people are always evolving, like some people don't realize certain things about themselves until they're like 60. Being you alone know? together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I think, I think that's- but in a negative way. Yeah, so I think like that's, that's the thing where um, to be able to like grow with somebody and grow together, not grow apart. Um, but you know, you do the best you can. You, you choose somebody um, to the best of your ability and life is a crapshoot. You know, you know, I, in thinking about that, like I have this, um, this Marvin Gaye vinyl behind me. I know you collect vinyls too. We, we talked about that. And, uh, you know, Marvin Gaye is one of my favorite artists. This is one of my favorite albums. This is one of the greatest albums of all time. I don't care what no one has to say. And the fact that, you know, this album, because I have so many things that I love. So I feel like in doing this, when I bring other people on, I wanted to have something that like, you know, I... I could show to people that means a lot to me even if it's just there right but the fact that you know when he made this album it, it wasn't what was popular you know like they they kind of like they they like poo-pooed it like you know what i mean like barry Gordy wasn't trying to put this out nobody was trying to put this out you know what i mean but he, he had to fight for um what's going on to come out and then once it comes out and it does what it does and then everyone's like, oh, we, we always knew. We always knew. And that's exactly what trying to execute your dreams are. You know, it's, it's that saying, um, uh, failure ha failures, in, failures an orphan, but success has a million fa uh, fathers. You know what I mean? It's that, you know? And yeah. And the fact that like he had a relationship that famously didn't work out and he turned it into an album. He paid, you know, he, he was devastated by it. Um, I think it was called Here, My Dear. Um, but at the same time, you know, if nothing else, just turn her, turn her into great art, so. So what does fear look like to you? 
Um, you know, I'll, I'll just use the answer that I gave earlier. It's it's the um, it's the lone diner that you know has been going to that restaurant his whole life, and all he knows is spaghetti and meatballs, and you know, his wife passed, and he's still at that point not gonna venture out and try anything new and like that's what fear looks like to me it's like man like what are you waiting for how do you overcome that how do you overcome that i think being having a front seat view of death early on um because i feel like since a very early age like everything i do is, is seen through the prism of life and death you know what i mean so i it's something that's on my mind daily. So I feel like that's one way of overcoming that. It's just realizing, you know, as quickly as you were brought here, even quicker than that, you can, you, you can be taken away. You know what I mean? So it's just, you know, we, we were both big Ye fans and he's always talking about we only have a hundred years here, you know, if we're lucky, you know, but, what are, you, what are you going to do with that if you get a hundred years, you know, so. And lastly, what do you do fearlessly? Um, I think what I do fearlessly is my ability to be myself. I didn't really appreciate it before as much as I do now. I had people that would tell me things like, no matter where you go, you're always yourself. And, you know, and that kept coming up from like different people. And it's like, and I'm like, man, is, is it that remarkable that I'm able to speak exactly how I want and, you know, just be myself no matter where I am. But apparently it is. Um, I guess they say, you know, the hardest thing you can do is just be yourself. But, um, yeah, I think just, just my ability to, like, be myself is something that I feel like I, I do fearlessly. And um, just try. Just try. If, if, if nothing else, you, you know, you, you, you took a stab at it. If it didn't work out, then, you know, you have a great story to tell. Those were all my questions. Oh <laughs> uh, man, thank you. How, how did that feel? It was good, it was good. I overcame the fear of speaking on camera. Maybe we can get me in front of the camera, but I don't <laughs> think that's gonna happen. No, nah, we'll, 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 we'll definitely get you no. in front of the camera. We'll definitely get you in front of the camera. But uh, thank you for doing this. It means a lot. And uh, if you watched, and uh, I, I thank you, and uh, see you next episode. Wait, 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 wait.